Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell-Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening, you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. Today, I have Leon McCarran with me here in our virtual studio. Leon has had a life already full of experiences. He has done all sorts of adventures, from cycling from New York to Hong Kong, walking across the empty quarter, so a large chunk of desert in Oman and the United Arab Emirates, and then more recently has been involved in setting up trails such as the Masa Ibrahim in Palestine, setting up trails in China, in northern Iraq, and I'm really excited today, Leon, to sort of talk about your your journey, where the challenges have been, and how they've changed in nature, I suppose, as well, from your earlier times to to the present day. So thanks so much for joining me on Facing Up. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And it's a fascinating topic to get a little bit of a chance to dig into. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I I always look forward to these conversations. Can you just uh, take us back? Where did you grow up? What were the kind of circumstances? You're obviously a high-flying adventurer now, but where where did you begin this journey? Uh, uh, Well, I am... From Northern Ireland, originally, uh, my mum's Irish and my dad's Scottish, and so we moved a few times between uh, Northern Ireland and Scotland, um, Aberdeen and the sort of northeast part of Scotland, uh, until I was about seven or eight, and then I spent the rest of my formative childhood years on the north coast of Ireland, which is a remarkably beautiful place. It's a very, it's a part of the world. Um, which is really very small, uh, relatively, but as a child, it it feels vast because I was fortunate to be able to get out into the countryside and run around. And uh, I was one of those kids who spent more time outside than ever inside. And I think a lot of that part of um, growing up has informed some of the decisions I've made later in life. Certainly, the interest and appreciation I have for the outdoors, um, the the gratitude I have then and now for ever being able to get into the outdoors. And I say this is, I'm sad in West London at the moment, very far <laughs> from the wilderness. And um, and I, so I stayed in, I stayed in Ireland until I was 17 and I went to university in the Southeast of England uh, and really stayed there for three years studying and, so I got to the age of my early 20s without really having ever had any experience of travel or, or getting out. My, my horizons were, were not very far off. I, I was pretty sheltered up to that point. Were you, did your parents kind of push you into the outdoors or was this all kind of very much off, off your own bat um, and just sort of left free to roam? I, I grew up rurally, so um, I mean, there was possibly a certain amount of pushing, but it was also just practical we lived on a farm so I 
it was natural to spend a lot of time outside. Some of it was functional, helping with animals and uh, helping out in fields. But um, a lot of it was just simply that there wasn't there was a lot more space outdoors than there was indoors. And why on earth would you spend any time inside? So, I mean, my um, my mum in particular was very keen that I spend time uh, learning about the outdoors. But uh, you know, there really wasn't any other option anyway. And was that something, was, was that quite a sociable activity or uh, was that kind of quite a lot of solo adventuring? Yeah, I mean, it was it certainly wasn't very sociable. We, uh, there aren't very many people in Northern Ireland to begin with and there <laughs> okay. are even fewer around where I lived. I went to a primary school that had 52 pupils in total. So there was four pupils in my um, year group, um, but the whole primary school was only two rooms, so lots of different your group shared. So all that to give a, an indication that, um, and I'm an only child, so uh, I uh, wasn't necessarily a, a childhood of solitude. There was definitely other people around, but but um, a lot of the times when I would be in summer holidays and so on, I would spend a lot of time on my own, just out in the woodland. Okay. And I'm also just interested in you know, talking about Northern Ireland, um, we're just about still in the time of the troubles. I'm realizing that my like British history is somewhat lacking at this point. Did did that have any kind of impact? Was that at all relevant? Or were you not not really? I mean, it's uh, anyone who grows up in Northern Ireland grows up with a an understanding one way or another, implicitly at least, about what it is. And it's a it's an unusual place to grow up. The, the divisions are certainly very apparent. Um, most towns and villages are quite adamantly either Catholic or Protestant areas. And um, so, so there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of marking of territory going on, but I mean, in terms of uh, violence or, um, or any more active representations of the troubles that was both slightly before my time. And also when it wasn't, it was, in the bigger places like Belfast and, and like Derry and, you know, where we were so far from anyone, um, no, there wasn't much right. to, to notice. And you didn't have kind of trouble crossing from one bit of woodland into another or like, you know, certain fences. I'm, I think I've got in trouble before from, you know, sort of swinging over a barbed wire fence and realizing you're in the, in the wrong place. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's occasionally uh, neighboring farmers who wouldn't have been, too happy about us uh, going to places we weren't meant to be, but there was a lot of woodland around that we could use. And um, you know, pretty early on, with if you grew up in the countryside, the the rules of engagement are drilled into you to uh, as to which part of a a, a metal gate to climb over. Um, for example, <laughs> you're you're told very very quickly which part you can climb over and which part you're not allowed to. And uh, yes, so, yeah, and that minimizes the chances of an angry farmer. Yes. I, I remember one of my ineptitudes being outdoors was when I was swinging my leg over a barbed wire fence and it was a freezing cold day. Like it was re- chucking it down with rain. So I was quite stiff and not that supple. And I ended up just laceracing the inside of my knee going over a barbed wire fence, which was... Um, my goodness, that sounds awful. Yeah, it, it wasn't a particularly smart thing to do. It was fine. Uh, it wasn't like a huge cut, but it was um, <laughs> a bit of a learning experience. <laughs> Yeah, well, it all is. I mean, I, I I learned. I think a lot of that stuff is very useful as a as a kid. I mean, it's um, it's it it teaches you about your own sort of 
abilities or inabilities as well as much as it teaches you about the specifics of where it is that you're trying to go and um, i'm very grateful for a lot of that from those days which i probably don't acknowledge in my own head yeah. as much as i should so you had quite an adventurous outdoorsy childhood you went to uni down in the southeast of england was that, was that a time which fueled your adventure like what happened when you graduated well i i mean going to university was by far the biggest shock culturally that um, I'd ever had. I mean, I, I came from a pretty sheltered upbringing in Northern Ireland to suddenly just being surrounded by lots and lots and lots of people um, and people who were much wiser about the world than I. And, um, you know, I'd ne- I hadn't lived on my own. I, I rarely spent much time with people outside of where I was from. I had to learn how to slow down and modulate my accent so anyone could understand me. <laughs> I didn't think I had a particularly strong accent, but it was <laughs> enough. So, I mean, all of those things were a huge shock. And I think part of that experience of university was in uh, leaving behind for a little while the childhood I had. I mean, suddenly I, f- I really felt like um, this guy had just been dragged in from a, a hedgerow somewhere and thrown into a, a, a cool multicultural um, suburban lifestyle in Canterbury. And um, so I left it behind and just tried to, you know, I lived a university life for three years and I I went out a little bit, but I, uh, running and, you know, along Kent coast, but I didn't do a huge amount. And it was only towards the end of my time there that I started to appreciate the uh, upbringing I'd had and the outdoors access that I'd had. And then also to wonder what I might do when I was finished. And I, mm. I started to get the bug to travel as so many people do. And, um, and that was the first part of the process of how I decided to end up going on a long cycling trip. So what were your um, plans or aspirations in your final year um, in Kent? I, I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to make films or write, um, but I wasn't sure beyond that. And I, I was definitely aware that it was a challenging time. I was graduating in 2008 and already becoming pretty clear that that wasn't the best time to be knocking on doors looking for jobs. Right. Um, And uh, I, yeah, it it started, as I imagine it, maybe it did for you and it has done for a lot of people. It started just as a a very small um, idea in the back of my head to try something quite adventurous to use some time and to try something um, and do something a bit different. And the more it stayed there, the more it grew and morphed and changed. And actually one of the big turning points for me was seeing a TV show at the time called Long Way Round, which was um, Mm. about a a motorbike journey of the actor Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman and these two friends and their cameraman Claudio Van Planta motorbike around the world. And, um, I didn't know how to ride a motorbike and I, I couldn't afford to buy one, but I, I loved the freedom and the sense of going off under one's own steam. And, yeah. um, and that, that really gave me the sense that maybe if I was going to travel, I should try and do it in a way that was a little bit more unusual. Do it properly, not cheap with some engine on the back. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, <laughs> I have to say I was probably forced into that, um, but I, I came to, yeah, I, I, and I, I hadn't really been a, a cyclist before that, but the bicycle, I, I came to realize was a great tool for travel and a, a great way to, to bring me to new places. And, um, and I suppose that that was at the time I'd 
really enjoyed uh, getting quite fit and running quite a lot and, and sort of testing the limits of my body a little bit more than I'd ever done before that. And so this was a, a way to add a, a physical challenge to what was um, going to be a, um, a very uh, mental one as well. There's a couple of things that I think are super interesting. Uh, one, which is that, you know, that idea in the back of your head, that little voice that says, oh, you know, have you thought about doing this? And um, I think that now I recognize that as one of those voices that you should fan, you know, fan the flames of because it tends to lead you in a really interesting direction. Um, you know, it's that sort of that slightly more creative, daring side that it's very easy to say shut up to. Um, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, all these things might happen if you do that. But actually, I found some of the decisions, at least I consider to be good ones, um, have come from that little voice, um, you know, such as paying the bagpipes, uh, which I think everyone else thinks was a terrible decision. Um, but, you know, it, it graces the start of these episodes anyway, um, which is, again, <laughs> probably another reason why everyone thinks I should have not picked, listened to that voice. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Um, but I completely get as well what you're saying about the bike and the physical challenge. Cause that for me, that first, one of the first times I listened to that voice was when I had this idea on new year's Eve in 2012, I was like, Oh, I could cycle from Lands End to John O'Groats. You know, I'm, I'm, I was on my gap year, didn't have anything to do. Um, and I was like, Oh, I actually could. And then the next day I got a train down to Penzance and I cycled from, uh, you know, lands and John O'Groats in winter and it ended up being fantastic, but it was just that sort of listening to that little voice in the back of your head that says, why not? So you, you did it literally within a, a day of deciding. Uh, I, I did. I, um, I sort of, I thought about it on the, on new year's Eve, it thought it was a ridiculous idea. And then on, on new year's day, I was like, Hmm, still seems like it could be fun. I uh, got the last train. I just sort of, you know, put some stuff in a bag, told my parents at like four o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, I'm, I'm getting the train, going down to Penzance. Um, got to Penzance at like half past midnight, tried to put up the tent in the car park. That didn't work very well. So I slept in a bus stop. Um, <laughs> got going the next morning. <laughs> what, had you done anything like that before? I mean, did you, what was your experience levels before setting um, off? Very low, very, very low. Um, never done anything like that before never really done anything that spontaneous um it was very much a step into the unknown but i, I think it's one of those defining moments when you do something like that and you realize it is possible you know as long as you're willing to put up with a bit of unpleasantness like sleeping in a bus stop like which isn't that bad in the big scheme of things you know there's a lot more that you can do did you have any experiences like that um i had I'd done a, sh a short cycling trip um, towards the end of school with some friends and we cycled around the UK. Um, but I mean, I say around the UK, we, we did very small parts of the UK on bicycles. And uh, that was really the first time I owned a bike in my adolescent life was I bought it for that. And we just poodled around for a bit. And um, that was quite helpful because there was, three of us and so it wasn't quite as scary as being on my own and also I um I it's like your bus stop experience that it seems awful until you do it and and then you realize all of these things are actually very mild in the scheme of terrifying horrible experiences and 
Um, and in fact, they might not even really be terrifying or horrible at all. Um, they might be something that you look back on with quite a, a deal of pride or um, or sort of uh, humor about. Um, Definitely. So, so those first bike trips, little trip that I did, taught mm. me some of that and, and gave me a bit more of the confidence to go off and plan a much bigger trip when I was leaving university. And uh, uh, and I had I still had plenty of fear and uncertainty, but less so about the. Um, I wasn't convinced that I was going to immediately die or get robbed. Which, right. Which might've been a fear otherwise. <laughs> and so what was the trip that you planned when you, when you graduated from uni? I, uh, I initially wondered if I could cycle all the way around the world and then that, that seemed a bit big and I didn't really know where to start. So um, I, I went to New York city because I was going to do an internship at a documentary production house there learn a little bit about filmmaking. Um, and then I figured I would just take a bike or get a bike there and then just ride firstly across the US from west to east and then keep going and just figure it out bit by bit. And I'd, I'd saved up for about a year after I left university with uh, a journey like this in mind. And so the, the, the end point would be maybe arbitrary geographically, but it would be very, um, very definite based around when my money ran out. Wow. So you literally went out and said, I'm going to cycle for as long as I can cycle. And when my dollar runs out, it's end. It's quits. Yeah, pretty much. And, and I didn't have a huge amount. I, I had a, a few thousand pounds, um, probably something like just under five, something like that. I had more about when I went to New York City. And the idea was that I would save some more in New York City. And that was a terrible idea because I, I spent almost everything I'd earned in a year <laughs> in a couple of months living there. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I just, I said a few hundred quid aside knowing that I could book a flight or a train or something back home from wherever I happened to be at the end of it. And the rest of it would just be frugally portioned out day by day. Um, and the working premise was that most things should be free. My transport was my bicycle. That would be free. Uh, water should always be free. Um, accommodation was my tent, so that was free. And all I needed to pay for was food, which I could buy in bulk and cook myself. And so I, I figured I could quite happily live on two or three dollars a day, which turned out to be true. Even in the US, it wasn't too hard to do that. Um, wow. Just two or three dollars have... a day. And you managed to keep yeah. that going. That's yeah, I bought, I bought bags of rice and lentils um, for dinners. I bought I went to these kind of like secondhand out of date stores that sold all the food a few months after the sell by date had expired. Um, I bought kind of peanut butter and granola and, you know, once a week I'd buy a bag of apples to make sure I didn't get scurvy. And, um, and that was, that kind of kept me going. And, uh, there was so much else going on. There was so much else that was taking up my senses and, um, filling me with, with, uh, things to think about and things to feel that I didn't have any desire for certain types of food or taste that I was missing out on. What kind of things were you experiencing? Um, initially it was all, initially it was very overwhelming. It was the, uh, as big, if not bigger, a shock to my system. The two biggest shocks that I have had um, were going to university and, and suddenly um, being thrown into that very different type of lifestyle and starting this bike trip and realizing that absolutely everything I did was 
going to succeed or fail based on decisions that I made and actions that I took or didn't take. So um, it was really a realization of your own responsibility. Like, yeah, yeah, it, completely. It's all down to uh, you. <clears throat> yeah, and eventually that becomes a, a positive force to know that. Um, and it can be manifested that way. But to begin with, it's very scary. And I was riding this bicycle out of New York City and I, I was getting lost, even just trying to get out of the city. And it was overloaded and I had too many things. And people were trying to stop me and talk to me because I had a loaded touring bike and I was dragging a trailer and, um, and everyone's being very friendly. But I was preoccupied with trying to get out of the city and not yeah. fall over. And um, I'm wondering if I had all the right stuff. and very concerned that something might go wrong with my bicycle because I didn't know how to fix much of it other than a puncture. Um, and, and then I had to think about finding places to sleep. There was dogs around, there might be wild animals. There was cars on the road that came very close. There was, um, weather that I couldn't really predict. I had to navigate. There was, uh, hills and, and winds, uh, that I, hadn't really accounted for. Um, and I didn't have anywhere to be. I just had to not die. And, um, even that sometimes seemed like a bit of a stretch. What you're saying there kind of sums up, you know, that there are always these like multitude of reasons of why we shouldn't do something, you know, the dogs, the cars, the weather, the uncertainty. What got you, through that, what helped you deal with those daunting challenges for someone who's never done cycle touring before? Well, I was, I was happy to be naive to start with because if I'd known more about it, I knew just enough to know that it was possible and not enough to know that it might be quite hard to begin with, <laughs> um, okay. which is a really nice sweet spot to be in. <laughs> And so I started and then really what kept me going in those first two weeks was the fact that I was so far from home. I was, uh, I actually had no idea how I would get home if I wanted to. Um, I knew I probably could, but um, the logistics of it would have been a real headache. And uh, I didn't feel capable of figuring that out. And actually the easier option was to just keep pedaling. Um, uh, rather than, you know, think about how am I going to get to an airport, book a ticket, pack up my bike, or do I just give it away? Where do I stay? You know, all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. Much easier just to wake up, roll out of my tent, get on my bike, and just turn my legs in a circle and uh, and try not to fall over. And um, being so far away from home was, I, I mean, I genuinely think if I'd started this from home, I was inept enough that uh, after about a week, I would have probably just returned home because I would have I would probably still been close enough to get my mum to come and pick me up and um being in the middle of a new continent albeit one that you know culturally has a lot of familiarity to me mm. and I could speak the same language as people and so on mm. still felt like a very different world and uh and I was quite I, I sort of made that decision to start far away from home knowing that I would be forced into continuing yeah. and um and I was glad for that I can, I find that can be a really powerful, uh, motivator to sort of embark on something without that many options of backing out because that can really, not because, you know, you, you don't want to, if thing goes terribly wrong, you know, you want to have some sort of escape plan, but often 
there's a period of you know some time when you're really having to get through some things that feel quite unpleasant and difficult but if you do then if you can get beyond that then it tends to be worth it but sort of putting yourself into something of a corner can be quite a good way of um succeeding when otherwise you might have sort of burrowed out of it yeah yeah and and the the risk versus reward um question was an interesting one for me because the rewards were so great uh that it became quickly apparent to me that this was something that was worth persevering with um and by the the rewards being great i, I mean that i my world is so small and, and each pedal stroke each mile made the world bigger to me and taught me so much more about uh the both the planet and myself i mean it sounds quite cliched and cheesy to put it like that but it's true i was i was in such new territory every single moment of every day of that trip that um each each new landscape each new interaction i had was an epiphany of some sort um and so the 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 risks of the things i was scared of of uh trouble with my bike or getting injured or um meeting a bear in the woods all of those things suddenly seemed to peel into insignificance compared to this i, I mean i could feel I, I could actively feel myself changing under the weight of this journey and i, I felt you know i could almost feel a, a sort of uh, the first um shoots of wisdom starting to come up um having gone 21 years without finding any <laughs> so you got to spill the beans here like what what did you feel like you learned how did it change you well um i firstly i i i started to get a sense of the scale of our planets i don't think until i mean i hadn't traveled very much before this but even if i had i would imagine I'd mostly done it in planes and in um, motor motorized vehicles. And until you really feel a landscape under your own body and you, you're moving across it using your own power, that's when you start to get a sense of scale. And mm. that's when you start to realize, I mean, I was, I'd been pedaling for two weeks and I was still in New York state. You know, I was still almost within um, oh the sight line of, of the city <laughs> that I'd left. And uh, to get, that that sh that showed me where I was that that patch of land how big that was how big the country and continent I was on was let alone the oceans that surrounded it and the rest of um, the planet and so that was a very each day I could look to the horizon and just imagine how much there was between me and that line that I might be lucky to see some of but that I would also never get to know other things about. Um, so a lot of it was that there was also, I was meeting dozens of people every single day and, um, I was getting little snippets of their life and, and they were getting the same of mine. And most people were very friendly and kind to me. And many people took me in, let me stay in their homes and I met their families and I, you know, I played with their dogs and I, I went to see their kids play baseball and, you know, all of these little interactions that I had and I didn't have enough information in my brain to be able to form um, uh, a philosophy about humans and humankind and our propensity for um, hospitality to one another or whether we were, whether I felt like we were inherently kind or not kind or 
good to each other or not good to each other. I, I was uh, either completely ill-informed or I was too informed by the news cycle and the daily headlines. And suddenly here I was seeing it for myself. Um, and, you know, later in that journey, I then started to, the next level of that is realizing that the certain, the interactions I had were based on a, another set of um, predetermined factors such as my own background, my own privileges, the color of my skin, my accent, my passport, all of these things. And um, it was only later that I then realized how my journey might have been different had I looked different or sounded different or so on. Um, So there's many layers to these, but that first one was very, uh, very pure, a real sense of wonder at at what a a vast and, and generous world I was entering into. Yeah. And I think that's something we'll come back to later, I suppose, in a slightly different context when um, you you touched on, I guess, the interactions that you had, how, and you said you're either sort of too well-informed, oh, so not really that well-informed at all, or kind of, it was was very similar to perhaps what you knew. And that seems to have been quite a formative experience given, you know, your later direction in trying to really, tackle the challenge of or challenging people's perspectives uh particularly with people who um groups of people who are portrayed in a certain and often negative way by mainstream media yeah yeah um and to a certain you know to a certain degree a lot of what i'm i've been trying to do in recent years is exactly that to replicate the experience i had but to make it accessible to uh, individuals and communities that would not often get a chance to do that because a lot of people who look like me get to go and do the sorts of journeys that I did um, mm-hmm. and they may or may not choose to do that and it's uh, there's a, a huge amount of value in it and it still requires a great deal of fortitude and and um, I, I think it, it is as powerful as it ever was but it shouldn't just be limited to by by any of, of those other mm. factors and so i would like to in any way i can try and um create more of an opening for for these sorts of experiences that change my life to impact upon others as well yeah i mean i'm very um aware that we are both white male you know british you know, got a red back passport and uh, you know, recently I chatted with Ryan Pyle, who's another adventure. He is, you know, white male Canadian. Um, I would love to, I think this will be a, definitely a future podcast of talking to someone who is at least not male. Um, and I guess some of the challenges that they've faced in, yes, there are challenges that we've you know, faced doing adventures, but I wonder to the extent to which like, we've had it very easy and it is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if it's looked at in relative terms and I, I think that's, um, you know, something that I think is really important to acknowledge as well is that the, the experience that you or I might have isn't diminished by the factors that are outside of our control. Um, and, uh, we, we still create the, the circumstances for ourselves. We still do things that, may push us um, 
to our physical and mental limits. We might take things on um, as you have done, things that are um, at the very, I imagine, at the very uh, outer edge of what you think is possible. And, um, you know, you, you want to really take on something which pushes you in a lot of different ways and challenges you in many different ways. And so I, I do think those um, elements are, are diminished and uh, it's very important that we, we remember how powerful those are to us. Mm. But equally, yes, there are um, uh, a large number of people, uh, a large number of communities who would find it much um, more difficult to enact their dreams or their the, the types of challenges they might want to self-impose upon themselves. Um, they might find it much harder to have a, a way to do that. Um, and so we should be, I mean, mostly we should just be very grateful for um, for the the privileges we have and in in the ways that we do try and uh, use those for a for a, a good purpose as well. I think that it that is absolutely right. I think we are um, incredibly lucky. I spent some time in Greece just a few days and um, spoke with um, some Syrian refugees and. Yeah, you know, what we can take for granted, you know, there are so many things that we can take for granted, but, you know, we can take for granted that we we could start an expedition in New York or in, in Spain. And, you know, for them, it is, uh, for those people I spoke to, it would be basically impossible for them to leave Greece. And it, it would be very challenging in other ways for them just to leave the, the city that they were in. Um, and of course, that is just a, a, a tiny part of it. Um, so you did this cycle ride. You got to Hong Kong. I think it was what um, fourteen thousand miles. You did. Yeah, yeah. So that's and that's a pretty pretty long way. You made that money yeah. go go quite a long way in a very literal. Yeah, sense. I did. I did, and um, and it is a long way. And I I could have kept going. I would have been happy to keep going, mm. but the money had run out, and also. I wasn't too sad about going home either. Um, so I ended up going home. How long had you been on the road? Uh, it was a couple of years by that point. Um, cause I, I stopped off, I stopped off in New Zealand for a while and, um, and I, uh, yeah, a couple other places as well for, for a couple of months. Okay. There. Very so briefly, it, where did you go? You started in New York and what was, so I went across the U S and then I, I rode down the West coast. I got as far as Mexico and then I, sort of changed my mind and came back up. Um, I, I'd met a pilot who reckoned he could get me a free or very inexpensive flight to New Zealand, which he did manage to do. Wow. So I, I suddenly ended up in New Zealand, which was a very uh, a totally new territory. I hadn't planned to go there. So I, from that point onwards, all my other plans fell apart. But I, New Zealand, <laughs> Australia, and then up through Southeast Asia into China, um, and eventually curved back around and came down to Hong Kong where I, I knew a couple of people and figured that was a good place to, to take stock. And then from there I flew to Europe and rode back across Europe to, to have a sort of final um, foray before I, before I came back to what I assumed was going to be more of a, a normal lifestyle. I had no idea what weirded me at that point. And um, actually one of the biggest challenges of all of this was coming back from this wonderful life-changing, life-enhancing experience, mm. um, feeling full of wonder at the world and, you know, feeling full of confidence in myself and coming back to have no idea how I would make a living um, or 
or where I would even begin to do that. And uh, right. sleeping on my cousin's sofa for a few months, trying to find work that was vaguely in the sphere that I might enjoy and, and coming up short. That does sound, I mean, on one hand, a very privileged challenge to have, but like a, a really big challenge in that you've, you've found something that you've in, enjoyed a huge amount. You've, um, it sounds like you're quite much more comfortable perhaps than you'd ever been in your own skin. And then you come back to the UK with a different value system that basically says what you've done is perhaps great, but we're not really interested in you in that way. You know, unless you can do a spreadsheet or whatever it might be, um, what you have to offer Leon isn't necessarily what we're interested in. Yeah. I mean, it's funny looking back at that time. I don't, I don't remember too much. I mean, one of the great things about the human brain is it blocks out a lot of pain and suffering. <laughs> okay. So you, yeah. you remember broadly the, the, the type of experience you have, but you don't remember the specifics of the yeah. struggle or, or the suffering, um, which I think is probably something we can be grateful for. But uh, I, you know, I think at the time I held on to things pretty lightly. And um, I, I knew for sure after that trip that I wasn't going to settle for doing something that I didn't really enjoy or that I didn't think was worthwhile or that I wouldn't be very good at. And I would, I kind of made my peace with the fact that I would rather go and do something somewhere else, go back to New Zealand and work on a farm there um, for a few years than take the sort of job that a lot of my peers had taken um, in London and uh, were doing very well and were building a nice life for themselves. And um, whilst I was admiring of their decisions uh, because it seemed to suit them. I just knew that I couldn't do it, not in, not in good conscience. Was um, that difficult? Did your friends understand? No, not really. But um, I think uh, I've probably always been a bit unusual, to be honest. And I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I um, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to self-prescribe with any of this stuff. But uh, a lot of the things that seem to make a lot of sense to me don't necessarily make a lot of sense to um, friends and people I grew up with. And I've gotten kind of used to that. And, and perhaps I've now got a community of friends and colleagues around me who, who think along more similar lines, but my value system was definitely quite different. And um, yeah, people couldn't understand why I would want to do that and, and wouldn't want to uh, join a more standard career path. But um Never even, you know, once I'd finished, once I'd been on that bike trip, and it, I, I couldn't even entertain the idea. It just, uh, it wasn't going to work for me and I, I wouldn't have felt fulfilled doing it. So it wasn't an option. Okay. So what did come next? Well, when I'd been in Hong Kong, I'd uh, met with a cyclist called Rob Lilwall, who had ridden from Siberia back to London over the course of three years and wrote a really a wonderful book. book about it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Really wonderful book. I really enjoyed and, it. Um, I'd met Rob at his book launch actually initially before I set off on my trip and um, uh, we didn't know each other very well at all, but he did say to me that if I made it to Hong Kong on my bike, I could come and stay. Um, so I did uh, a few years later and Rob was... Uh, um, still uh, keen to have me to stay and so I, I went and we got to know each other and, and we decided that it might be really interesting to try and explore more of China and um, Rob was looking for someone who knew how to use a camera 
um, I was looking for something to do if I was giving up the bike trip quite soon. And so we spent, even after I got back to London, we spent six months trying to make that work as an idea. And we eventually did. We, through Rob's contacts, we got a commission to make a TV series about it, which was remarkable given that neither wow. of us had uh, much experience in that sort of thing. It was very much out of our league of expertise, but someone took a chance on us. And um, so I just tried to keep things ticking over uh, and give myself enough time to, um, you know, I, I didn't rent an apartment or do anything like that. I just slept on friends' sofas um, and uh, did a little bit of kind of copywriting work, uh, which brought in enough money to pay for some food. And then I spent the rest of my time planning this trip and eventually flew to Hong Kong and started walking and then flew to Mongolia and started walking back across China with Roy. Wow. That's quite an adventure. But before we came on air, um, we talked a bit about um, actually what perhaps you considered to be a challenge changed quite a lot um, from, you know, I guess, the start of your bike ride. There are a lot of things that you felt quite unsure or perhaps a little bit you know daunted by but um you said to me something that was quite interesting that you know now you feel that was almost that seemed that had ceased to be a challenge or that kind of adventure at some point it kind of ceased to be so much of a challenge is that right yeah yeah i think my all of us have an ongoing relationship with the idea of challenge and what it means to us and um, and you will have had that to me, your understanding of it, I'm sure will have morphed and changed uh, remarkably through your journey. Um, Definitely. And yeah, and um, you know, in a very different way, mine did too. I, I, uh, it was about the biggest challenge I could imagine going off on a bicycle and fending for myself and seeing if I could get back home again. Um, and I did that, but um, and then it was a, a huge challenge to try and turn what I love doing into a career um, and get a TV show contract with Rob and, and then a challenge to try and walk across 3,000 miles of China and to combine that with shooting a TV show, neither of which were things I'd done before. Phenomenal challenge. Yeah. Um, I tried and, to do and some in filming sense. and like on the start of the Bristol to Beijing cycle ride. And like, my goodness, it's really difficult. <laughs> it's, it is really difficult. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of practice. And I, I'm, I'm sure you will find as well that the more you do it, the, the more you get into rhythm with it. But it, it does take quite a lot of, it takes a huge amount of energy and it, it impacts on the trip. And, hmm. um, and then after that China trip, I, I went to the Empty Quarter Desert with uh, a guy called Alistair Humphreys. And we walked across that and we made a film about it. And so each of them were, each of those was a, a type of challenge, but it was mostly in, internal. It was mostly, um, first of all, figuring out who I was and then challenging myself to get better and to do more and to, to, to fulfill certain ambitions that I had. And um, what I would say is that in recent years, whilst I would still love to go and walk across deserts and do things like that, I, I don't have as much of a desire to do it because I don't, it wouldn't fulfill me as much personally. And um, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of things we talked about at the start of this, of um, the, the sort of privileges and access that I've had to these types of experiences and how can I, how can I be some sort of vessel to make that um, more likely for someone else. Um, and so I, 
I've ended up looking at stories that involve communities who are marginalized a lot um, in the Middle East and elsewhere, communities who uh, are deeply misunderstood. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's led me into to a whole other field and we can talk about that if you like. But mm. um, I would say that my, of course, there's still personal challenges for me in, in everyday life. But um, the biggest one is how do, how do I take what I've been given and then what I've created myself on top of that to do something really useful in the world? How do I leave behind something? And that's an enormous challenge. How do we create something worthwhile with our time on earth? It's, um, I think that's like hitting the nail on the head, isn't it? I think uh, for so many people, when you move past things like uh, you know, money and possessions and, and status, of, you know, those, those can be motivators. But then beyond that, um, that's something that suddenly I've come back to quite a few times. And I'm sure a lot of people come back to is, you know, how can you leave your mark? And it's, I think everyone tries to leave a positive mark, you know, in their own way, um, something that will leave the world a, a slightly better place if we're lucky. Yeah. So can you give us an example about these communities, the, the narratives that um, you're trying to shed more light on or more nuance? This is something I'm very interested in, the kind of cancer sphere of like, you know, what's possible with a cancer diagnosis? It's like, come on, guys, mm. like there is more to life um, in, in, in some senses um that's really a discussion for another time but what are some of the narratives you've been looking at well you know i, th I think what what you just said is really important because it has to be something that you not necessarily you have some sort of authority to to talk about but something that you have a, a, a direct um way to to communicate that you know what one of the questions i ask myself quite a lot is why should it be me that's telling this story why am I the one to be here and what what can I bring to it that nobody else could mm. um, I mean it started quite quite soft soft transition for me I, I um, did a couple of expeditions one was in Iran where I followed the longest river in the country from source to sea with uh, Tom Allen and the really enjoyed the two... that film wolves oh, on the first night and then you were kayaking down the Quran in like it, it, with, uh, in kayaks that you kind of blew up and you had them in backpacks, yeah. right? And yeah, they were wonderful. Yeah, and it was, was so jealous. It was a, it was a fantastic trip, and it was really you know it was a real adventure. A lot of that one, um, and there's two there's two twin goals for that. One was to see if we could get from one end of the river to the other, um, and the second was to create a film that showed um, a different version of Iran from the one that so many people understood, one that was focused on the natural beauty of the landscape and the hospitality and um, kindness of regular Iranian people. And I, I used to talk quite a lot about finding humanity in these places, but I, I've realized that maybe that's not the best word to use because it's almost condescending. Of course, people are human. It's, um, it's, yeah. uh, they shouldn't have to prove that, but it's, um, yeah, definitely. To, to do a journey like that was, was wonderful because it was just, all we had to do was, just meet people and talk to them. And, and then we made this film about how wonderful Iran is. So it started off with things like that. Um, and uh, the Middle East became a big focus for me. And, um, and now more recently, um, I've been 
working on a project around hiking trails um, mm. and hiking trails are about much more than walking there we you know we're, we're so used to them in the uk because they're everywhere in mm. most of western europe we're very fortunate yeah, to have tell them. us more about hiking trails because i i thought hiking trails were just about walking yeah well i mean i guess i did too or maybe i didn't even think enough to to form that thought but um they they're in many ways a platform for a lot of other wonderful things to happen um so uh the first real experience I had with hiking trails was when I walked from Jerusalem to Mount Sinai um, in this sort of, and eventually back to Jerusalem in this kind of loop of the Holy Land region. And on that trip, I used a series of relatively new and, and locally owned hiking trails, one called the Masai Ibrahim, which um, I know you know, uh, that runs the length of Palestine, the Jordan Trail and mm. the Sinai Trail across the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and those trails were all developed over a number of years uh, as a way to um, to create opportunities for people within those countries to access the landscape and to to use it and see it in a new way um, to kind of bond people and and their country together um, to create an industry and an economy for tourists to come and experience these things as well. Um, and to, to build kind of a, a sense of pride and, and ownership over, over the landscape. And um, so they, and they've been very successful in, in doing that um, and have totally re- reinvented the way that, for example, Palestinians see their own land as well as how outsiders and internationals might see Palestinian land. It's it's really interesting that um, that point about it not just being trails being for the international tourists uh, because uh, before before this podcast you told me about you know um, how you're helping set up a, a trail in northern Iraq and I was like great this looks like the perfect adventure for me you know next thing you know go. but that's actually maybe it's part of the point but it's a lot more than just sort of giving another holiday destination or adventure destination for, for western tourists yeah but i mean absolutely it is also part of the point i mean it's a it's a wonderful place and um you would love it i love it many people love it it's alpine scenery in northern iraq it's beautiful big uh big peaks and lush valleys and so on but it's also about um more importantly create helping to helping to build um helping to create a platform upon which local people can enjoy the mountains. And in Northern Iraq, particularly as, as with much of um, the Middle East in general, but, but, you know, more so in this region, the mountains have been very important in the, the Kurdish area where I've been working. And they've always been a place where people have sheltered from conflict and from aggressors. And so mountains have been very important to people, but the, their protection and their safety um, and historically people fled into the mountains to get away from danger. Mm. And um, the project that we've been working on now is, is building upon an existing desire from young Kurds and, uh, and young Iraqis in general as well to, to come and to see those mountains in a new light and see them as somewhere that people can enjoy and, um, uh, and learn from rather than just somewhere that is a, a safe haven. Um, and so to, to kind of find these old trails that are, they might be shepherd's paths or old pilgrimage ways or 
trading routes or um, any of these sorts of things. So much history and culture embedded into um, that that little patch of soil. It's uh, it gives um, people who might predominantly live in the cities a way to get out, enjoy their landscape, feel a sense of pride and connection to the land um, around them. Uh, and then if they're so inclined, it's either something that just helps people get out, be fit and healthy and, and so on. Uh, or it can be, people can get involved in uh, pioneering a, a new type of tourism and adventure tourism industry and can become guides and, uh, you know, start up local initiatives along the trail and, and help it become something much bigger as it has done in other places. Mm. That's um, something that I've done uh, with my brother back in 2015. We cycled in, in Lebanon, something called Poly Liban, which is very similar, but on bikes. And it's really about getting, um, opening up Lebanon to Lebanese people so they can see some of the incredible beauty, see some of the... Um, you know, the, the, the villages that otherwise no one would ever see and, um, yeah, have, have an opportunity for, for interactions that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and what, what was your overwhelming takeaway from that journey? That's a great question. Um, I was amazed at how passionate the people were. The people who put on and ran Polyliban cared no less about what they were doing than um you know a, a triathlon outfit in the uk or like you know a top pro running team or you know, you know pro runners or you know training squad you know they were absolutely passionate about, about exercise about the beauty of lebanon um about uh, doing something like cross cross faith as well I mean, of course in lebanon that's particularly person giving given it's a country made up of you know, christians uh sunni muslims shia muslims druze and and more so it was a safe space and a forum i suppose as well yeah yeah and and trails in the act of hiking or cycling um they're all very non-threatening activities right and um they involve you, you know you're never they are sport but you're never in opposition with each other um, it's kind of people moving in the same direction and, and being alongside each other. And it's all very conducive to creating a, a way for these sort of dialogues to happen. Mm. And I also want to just, I'm sure some people might be thinking, Iraq, isn't that a dangerous place? Can you tell us a bit more about the Kurdish region before we move on? Yeah, I mean, Kurdish region is autonomous um, from the rest of Iraq. So it's still Iraqi, but it uh, has its own government. Um, it has its own borders, uh, it has its own regulations for entry, so um, coronavirus time accepted. Normally you can just fly to one of the airports and get a visa on arrival and go through. It's, it's, it's very safe. I mean, it's, it's, uh, most of the region is, I'd argue, safer than you know, most uh, European and American cities, but it's safe even by um, regional standards uh and it's very very beautiful it's um i spent a lot of time over the last four years there 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 is a tourism industry there people come to see some of the uh older sites there's a, a lot of um old monasteries and other religious minority sites and um erbil the, the capital of the kurdish region in iraq has uh, got a seven thousand year old citadel in the middle of it and um 
so it's it's a really wonderful place and uh, i mean there's certainly no the threats that people might have might associate with um mentions of iraq like uh, conflict or kidnapping none of those are are things that people need to worry about and kurdistan and um you know the the only way for anyone really to take my word for it is to come visit <laughs> right um when do i get visitors. to come out and visit you as soon as coronavirus <laughs> goes away <laughs> amazing looking forward to it um you mentioned before that at this really interesting point of am I the best person to do this role? Am I the best person to try and challenge perceptions, shed new light, um, build trails? Have you been able to answer that question for yourself? Um, yeah, in, in some circumstances. Uh, I think, you know, in regards to the trail work that I'm doing, um, it's I find a, a method to work there where I can use some of the, the skills and knowledge I have from a few years of work in this field um, alongside contacts to bring in funding and, and um, be able to uh, create the infrastructure for the development, but still allow local stakeholders, local pioneers to be the ones who direct and uh, shape the vision of the, the project. So it's still something that is very locally owned and I just use the um attributes that i can bring to help that come mm. to life other things are more difficult i mean i i do some work as a journalist and i i love writing stories about um certain communities and I, i've done a lot with communities like the samaritans community um we live in the west bank who are possibly the smallest and oldest ethno-religious group in the world and uh i these are the samaritans uh, of of the good samaritan right yeah exactly of, of the bible times um you know the the jews from judea and the samaritans from samaria um in the uh as, as those regions were two thousand plus years ago and so the, the samaritans there was a million and a half of them in the roman era there's now uh just over 800s um and they have this very odd but wonderful existence in the midst of the israel-palestine question and everything else regionally and um I, you know, I, I've written a lot and, and done a lot of different types of um, projects with the Smarting community, but with stuff like that, I sometimes wonder, is there someone better placed who can tell this story from a, from a more local perspective or, or who's got a, a, a different insight? And in, in journalism and, and crossing into a, some aspects of adventure and adventure writing in particular these days, I think that's a question we've got to ask is what value do we have in sending out international correspondence to a place? If there's someone in that place who can already tell that story, mm. um, yeah. it, it, you know, is, is this the end of the era for foreign correspondence? And probably not because there are people with certain types of knowledge who will, um, who still have a purpose to go places and, you know, still the reality that most audiences want to hear from someone who they feel they have a connection with previously. But um, I think it is a time to, to lift up um, local voices, to lift up voices from minority communities and, uh, and help people tell their own story rather than have outsiders like me always be the one to come in and tell it. Has that been difficult to make a career out of it? In, as in, is there an appetite 
for sure i enjoy listening to these things but like is there do you find there isn't you know an appetite for these stories that do talk about minorities which don't reinforce our pre-existing notions of how um, things are not, not really to be honest um it's not uh it's much i mean so one example is um that i um I went to southern Iraq at the end of 2018 to join a pilgrimage, um, which is called Arbain, which is the the largest annual pilgrimage in the world. So between 20 and 25 million Shia Muslims come to walk between two holy cities in southern Iraq. And they walk, it's not a huge distance, it's about 50 miles, but people of all ages walk it. Uh, mm. Women walk alongside men and uh, everyone comes and it's a, it's a time to a spirit, a very spiritual time. Um, and of course it's very peaceful and, you know, it's really wonderful. No money changes hands. All these volunteers come out and create a, essentially a pop-up city that runs the length of the 50 mile route and they provide food and accommodation for everyone wow. along the way. And you know, it's, it's the most incredible, um, display of how humans look out for one another. Uh, mm. and very little has been written about it. Um, and, uh, I went there and joined the journey and, and had everything I needed for a, a, what I thought would be a really interesting account of it. And I pitched it to a number of places and a lot of people just said, no, it's not of interest or, you know, it's not really what our readers want. Um, and eventually when I did get it commissioned and I'm very grateful to the publications that did commission it, um, a couple of them said, to be honest, in order for us to, to run this, we need you to feature in it. We need you to tell it as a, a sort of first-person narrative account of your experience of being there. Oh and my so, goodness! So you <laughs> so know, going it's, against it's not, what you set out to do in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's not you know it's not necessarily. Of course, it's still a relatively interesting story of, of me as um what it's like to be someone from here writing about being part of this religious pilgrimage when I'm not a member of the the faith. Um, or from the country, but I think it, it says a lot that that was the angle it had to, you know, it needed to have a link to, um, in order for them to justify that their readers would, would, uh, would, would go for it. How do you think, what actions can you take or we as a slightly wider community take to change that? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's a uh, step by step. And I think um, I, I was still pleased that that particular story was printed in a major publication and that um, people got to read about it. And even if they read about it through my lens, mm. then, you know, they, I still got to write about all the wonderful things about it. Um, so I think, the stories that we can tell even from our perspectives are, are valuable. But I also think that every opportunity that we have, we should use to, to lift up others who may not have that. And so when I can, I, I um, help mentor a couple of uh, um, good friends and, and, and very talented storytellers in um, Iraqi Kurdistan, who at some point will, will be able to find a platform for their own stories. And in the meantime, um, you know, I just share with them any knowledge that I've been fortunate enough to pick up. Uh, and I also th think that, um, as, 
as future opportunities arise for me, um, I'll think very carefully about whether or not it feels appropriate for me to to tell those stories or whether I should at least at very least do it in collaboration with someone locally who's who's better placed to do that. Mm. So when you started and you went for your long distance ride, that took you out your comfort zone. And there are a lot of challenges in that. And then uh, after a few more adventures, you kind of realized you'd been selecting the challenges. You'd been sort of um, still very lucky to be able to put yourself in these challenging situations rather than just having challenge come along. And now you're working in areas where people do have these challenges, uh, do, do, you know, uh, whether it's, um, you know, I- internal conflict, losing people very close to them. Um, how well do you feel that you're able to relate to people who have lost their, their families or their homes or um, seen some pretty horrible stuff? I mean, um, experience, there's only so much we can ever really walk in someone else's shoes. And um, I think uh, I can never, I can never truly, um, I can never truly feel what that person feels, but I can empathize and I can do my best to imagine. And um, I can just, I mean, the best thing I find is to to just uh, try and try and let my guard down and, and, and respond as as uh, as humanly as I feel fit and um, you know there's a there's a sort of sense sometimes when you, when you hear stories that are very difficult that you you try and um, project a response in a certain way because you want the person you're speaking to 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 feel that it's managed and that you're not um, that you're not uh, taking on their woes and making them your own and, and so on. Mm. But, um, you know, if, if I hear pretty harrowing things as I, I do sometimes, then, uh, you know, those things are really awful. And, um, sometimes just to, to acknowledge that is, is the best possible thing. And, um, also there's nothing I can really do about that other than just listen. But what I can perhaps do is I can, um, I can listen, which, which does help. And, uh, if I'm writing a story, um, often people like their story to be told often it's, I, I find that, um, nobody's really taken an interest before. And it's, um, mm. it's of great value to, to have someone willing to tell that story and put it in context. Um, and I, I always try and think what, what can I do here that other people won't do? Um, you know, why am I here basically? And, uh, it's what can I to, to create something positive out of it and with a trail initiative or um, a storytelling project uh, each of those pieces becomes you know one more um, building block in trying to create something uh, good out of, mm. out of the situation I think what you said there about um, your words or presence can't 
very, nearly all the time can't solve the problems, can't change the problems happening or can't change the past. Um, but being there with someone through that emotion can going down onto to that level of you know where that person is can be a very helpful and positive thing tell me about it from your perspective so from um from people that you have let's say friends um family around you uh how did how did people react to to your journey and your your diagnosis and what what did you find was um the more helpful types of reactions for you? Yeah, so certainly some helpful, I, I guess from different people, the different things were helpful. Um, I was amazingly grateful, or I was um, very grateful to you know, my friends from university for being a group of people who could accept the information and then we could just carry on as we'd always carried on. And I didn't have to feel like I was sort of, you know, special or different. You know, we, we can, you know, have a good time, play games, you know, have a few beers. And that was as normal. And that having that sense of normalcy was very, um, very helpful. Um, I think what was often difficult is, I think anytime anyone says, I know what you're going through, I know how it feels, you know, like even if they'd had been through something similar, you're like, bullshit, <laughs> like you don't know what I'm going through right now. Um, so I think that's always something to, to stay away from. Um, I think you can echo back, you know, if I'd said, God, like this just feels so tough right now. And I, um, um, I'm really scared. You know, I think saying, you know, Crikey, you know, I, I can, you know, it sounds like you're going through something which is just incredibly tough and scary. It sounds like you're just kind of saying exactly what they just said. Um, but it's amazing actually how powerful that is as a listening technique of actually showing that you've listened to what someone else has said. And I think for so many people, right, like if we're going through a challenge or a problem, feeling that someone else really has listened to us about what that challenge is um, also feels like they understand you as well. And hopefully that they, they, they do to a greater extent. So I think that can be really helpful. Mm. It's, it's, um, do you think it's something that people have, do you think some people are, are naturally better at listening in, in these sorts of circumstances or, um, or do you think it's something that people learn how to do? I think there's a there's a bit of both in that. Um, I think some people um, are tend to just give more time and be more patient and listening. And I think um, I think that might be to a large extent, you know, a reflection of priorities that we've either grown up with or we've seen our parents do or other people that we admire, um, or we've made a conscious decision about that. Um, but I think there's a large part which is also learned. Like, um, you know, before I you know, received my diagnosis, before I lost my brother, like, I think I was pretty insensitive, not in a callous way, but like, I just didn't get it. Like, you know, what, what was loss? You know, what was the challenge of cancer? You know, like I had, 
I had my exams to study for. Um, I had my life to go out and live. You know, I didn't have time to like hold people's hands as they went through challenges. Like, uh, I, I don't sound very good here, but I think that's, you know, to a large extent, I think that's true. And I think it's true for a lot of people unless you've gone through a challenge or you've had a friend who's, or a close, you know, someone who's close to you go through that challenge. Or I think books can be, I think that's the, the beauty perhaps of books and great art is that it can help you get inside the mind of someone else and that will really great art, you, it'll stay with you for a bit. You know, by art, film, books, you know, photography. Would that be your advice to people then who maybe have, uh, feel like they have not necessarily gone through anything of great difficulty themselves and might want to, uh, might want to check themselves as to how they, how they help, how they, how they empathize more with others. Would your advice be to, to read more, to watch more, to engage more? Yeah, I think certainly engagement. I think, you know, it's not a case of simply, uh, you know, watching and reading random things, I suppose, you know, it's, um, I'll probably have a think and if I get some good ideas, I'll put it in the links below the things that I found really impactful. Um, but actually, I think this is one of the aims of the podcast is to give this space where if you don't know what it's like to um, be sexually abused or have that experience, that this is a place where you can hear about what that has been like for someone else. And that might, you know, be something that you take away and think about for a long time you know yeah i think there's a i mean this is something that took me a lot of years to to realize um but th there is a responsibility in all of us to to educate ourselves about um what others might be going through um and to to educate ourselves on um how to best position ourselves to be there for those around us uh, and whether that's in very um, specific scenarios or whether that's just in a broader sense to be a, 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 a crutch to help people when, they, when they're in need um, individually or as communities. Uh, you know, I, I, I more and more strongly feel that the, the older I get and the more I, the more I travel that um, certainly someone like me has no excuse to live an insular life and just look out for myself and have no experience of um the outside world and, and people who don't have what i have and uh there's which is which is a change from what i might have thought a few years ago because i, I would have previously probably subscribed as long as i wasn't doing any doing any harm it was fine but i think we're we're built for more than that and we're capable of more than that that's a fascinating word responsibility I hadn't ever thought about it like that, that we actually, it's not necessarily a, a choice, but it's a responsibility to, to be conscious about others and look out for others. I definitely haven't, I definitely didn't think of it. I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I still think of it. I, I mean, I'm not sure at this point I think of it like in those terms, but I definitely didn't in the past, but that's going to stay with me, the responsibility to yeah. look out for others. I, I, I think it is, and uh, 
you know, how, how we all interpret that is, is up to ourselves. And mm. um, there's no, there's no exam on this, right? Like, it's not like we ever get tested to see whether or not we, we did it right or how much we did. It's just within our own um, conscience that we, we live with that. But uh, yeah, the, the more I, um, especially at times like this, when uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic and a lot of things are brought into sharper focus, it's um it's a time for i mean it feels to me like the whole world is kind of collectively inhaling at this point and um <clears throat> i can see even at this time i have i have a moment to pause and reflect and i'm quite enjoying this time honestly it's a it's a break for me but um that experience in itself is very much at odds with much of the world and with with a lot of close friends of mine people are really struggling they're not sure where money's going to come from. They're not sure how their businesses are going to survive after this. And, uh, you know, people are being hit in different sectors now than have been hit by other things that we've gone through, uh, in a national or international sense. And so even, even just this moment in time, um, brings this to the fore for me and, and, and makes me once again reassess. It's probably quite a good, thing to do reasonably regularly is reassess where we're, we're each at and, and what we're trying to do and what we are doing and what we could do more and better. Definitely. I think um, we don't want to get to the end of our lives and realize that we've been working towards things that we then realize we don't care that much about, whatever that is. Um, and so I have like, yeah, also been reflecting in this time which is bizarre because i thought i'd kind of like had the, the kick up the ass that i would ever like the biggest kick up the ass i'd ever need to like kind of get my priorities straight but you know no i'm, I'm thinking about it again i'm like okay you know what do i what do i really want to do what do i really value what, what's important and i yeah, yeah i don't think it ever stops but also what i think you've done and what I'm, you know which is the thing i find particularly uh wonderful and, and inspiring about uh about um, what you've been doing from when we first met is that um, you use that as a springboard to to launch onto everything else, and and each of us needs something to start us on that. And um, you know, I'm sure if you could choose, you wouldn't have chosen the way that uh, it happened for you. But um, you took something that it, uh, could have crushed many people and used it as something really positive, and not just for yourself, but for others. And and I think that's, um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's very hard to, I try and never be prescriptive about this. I, I don't feel like I'm in any position to be telling anyone else how to live their lives or what they should do. But mm. um, if I speak just for me and you, I can say that I think what you've done is wonderful. You've taken um, a very personal experience and a very challenging one, and you've turned it into something that you're using to better yourself and to reach out to others as well. Um, and, in my my constant challenge and ongoing challenge is how do I do things that I could be proud of that I think um, will make some some something better somewhere and will impact on someone's life positively and if I can do that uh, even just once even just a handful of times I'll I'll be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a double positive. One, there's a positive impact 
on, on the wider world. And, and two, there's an internal positive impact because I don't think there's anything more rewarding from my own experience than seeing good come about from, you know, actions or projects that one has put like a huge amount of time and effort into. Can we finish by, can you tell us about one project or story or something that you work really hard on and the, the, the impact that that's had? Um, yeah, I, um, I think, you know, I, I, there, there's a few things in, in the last couple of years that I've been really proud to be part of. And um, I, I feel like the work, I mean, I'll, I'll just go back to it because it's really the thing that's at the, the forefront of my mind is, is this work in, in the Kurdish region of Northern Iraq. And um, we're just, I started this thing there thinking it would maybe take a year or two years to help um, catalog trails and, and turn it into something that people could enjoy. It's becoming rapidly clear that it will take a decade probably to, to really do this properly. Um, but through that, I've made the most wonderful friends. Um, I've found a place that is so far from my own home, but yet where I feel so at home. And um, I can, because I've been there from the very beginning of it, I can see already how it's helping impact on people's lives to have the facility there and the promise of more facility of trails and jobs and um and everything that comes alongside it so that's something i'm you know i'm, I'm proud to have been involved with at this point but I, I i hope we could have this conversation again in um and i hope we do in another you know six or seven years and that it's something i can really point to and say this is something and I'm just a small part of it, but it's it's doing real good. I, I'm really looking forward to that conversation, and I want to um, meet you and raise you and say, let's actually have it out in Kurdistan. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll arrange a time in a, a nice section of trail, and you'll be very welcome to come out. Perhaps you can uh, swing by on your bike. I can't wait. Leon, it's been really fantastic chatting today. Some very thought-provoking discussions in there as well thanks so much for your time it's a pleasure yeah thank you and that was my conversation with Liam McCarran I really hope that you enjoyed it I was really struck by how Leon said that you know crossing the empty quarter these long distance really seemingly very tough adventures they were no longer sort of challenge enough for him and that he saw that his calling and and talents could be used to tell the stories of other people who are facing unavoidable challenges i suppose and yet he was also questioning whether he was the right person to do that so that's definitely given me some food for thought if you enjoyed this podcast please do share it with your friends your family your colleagues uh, and tell them about facing up with luke until next week Goodbye.